and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 brought the so-called Global South back into focus in Washington and European capitals. The response of the so-called rest has stood in sharp contrast to the unity and cohesion within the transatlantic relationship, and even with like-minded partners in the Indo-Pacific. As one of our guests has pointed out in an op-ed in September, while 40 countries may have joined together to sanction Russia, two-thirds of the world population lives in countries that have not. The divergence between the West and the rest has been on display in multilateral forums such as the United Nations and the G20, where at the most recent G20 summit in India, there was not enough consensus to call out Russian aggression in the summit's final statement. And that was all before Hamas's attack on Israel. Even before October 7th, global resentment towards Europe and the United States was already palpable. And the fallout of Hamas's attack has only amplified these views, leaving the U.S. in particular increasingly isolated. To talk about perceptions of the U.S. and Europe in the so-called global south, why it matters and what can be done, we're really pleased to have Natalie Tochi and Timothy Garten-Ash with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Hello. Wonderful being here. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, for listeners, uh, Natalie Tochi is the director of the Italian Institute of International Affairs. In her former role, as special, she was also a special advisor to EU High Representative Federica Mogherini and Joseph Burrell. And Timothy Arden Garten-Ash is professor of European studies at Oxford University. He's the author of 11 books that have charted the transformation of Europe over the last half century. And his most recent is called Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. Okay. Uh, we've been wanting to do this episode for quite some time. Um, it's been in our minds really since Russia's invasion of Ukraine magnified the problem that the U.S. and Europe are having in the so-called global south. And as I said in the intro, it's now only become ever more urgent. So we hear this all the time that the United States and Europe have this problem. But I would love to hear fr from both of you how you would articulate it. Like, what, what is the problem that we are having in the so-called global south? Natalie, why don't we start with you? Yes, Andrea. I mean, I think basically the, the problem predates, of course, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, but we recognized, and we didn't have a choice, we had to recognize that there was a problem um, after the, the invasion of Ukraine. So in a sense, the problem, um, you know, is as basic as, you know, sort of the resentments um, of many countries in the south of the world towards, you know, colonialism, neocolonial practices, Western hypocrisy, double standards. Um, there's nothing new. I mean, this did not start basically with, uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, what happened, I think, with, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and, and of course this was, you know, sort of starkly on display at the UN General Assembly with, with those votes where, you know, initially we were actually quite sort of chuffed with ourselves. We thought, well, you know, you have 141 countries kind of voting together with us. Oh, this is, this is great. And then you kind of, you start looking into the finer details and you're like, oh, okay, so 32 abstained. Okay, it's true that only, you know, uh, four or so voted uh, together with, uh, well, voted against the resolutions and therefore voted uh, for Russia. 
but 32 abstained and whoops, you know, of the 32 abstaining, basically, we're talking about most of the world demographically. Um, and, and there's most of the world. And I think this is the second point. I mean, on the one hand, there was a recognition that this was happening. And on the other hand, it's a most of the world that increasingly matters, you know, because um, it is China, it is India, I mean, it is many of the, um, you know, as, as one of our colleagues, uh, Ivan Kastor put it, uh, put it once, you know, the, the, the mid powers that want to be great. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, sort of, it's powers that increasingly make their voices heard. And it's not like you have to listen to them out of generosity. You listen to them because you don't have a choice because they increasingly matter. Um, so I think on the one hand, there was, you know, something that happened where we were so clearly, I mean, as far as international law is concerned, in the right, and yet being in the right not only wasn't sufficient, um, but in fact was used as an argument to highlight exactly all of those resentments that have been bubbling away for so long. Um, you know, I think that the fact that the war in Ukraine made that reality um, obvious was actually in and of itself probably a good thing because it's only when you recognize that you have a problem that you start doing something about it. So, and I'm sure we're going to get to this later on in the conversation, you know, sort of, you know, had we spoken prior to the 7th of October, um, you know, my line would have been, this is good. You know, I mean, it's not like the war in Ukraine made those resentments emerge. The fact, you know, it's good that now we recognize it and therefore we can do something about it. I think now we're in a very different place, but perhaps we'll get to that later. Wonderful. Um, Timothy, do you, I, I want you to add to that. And I do, I want to come back to the question after we hear from you, Timothy, about why it matters, because I still think in parts of Washington, DC, at least, you know, when you talk about Ukraine specifically, there's still a lot of skepticism that, you know, having Kenya sanction Ukraine, for example, really matters. Um, so I want to come back to the why it matters in a minute. But again, Timothy, like your, how would you articulate the challenge that's facing the United States and Europe with with the so-called rest? So on the one hand, the paradox of the war in Ukraine is that on the one hand, it recreated the unity of the West. And on the other hand, it revealed what one could very loosely call the post-Western world, a world in which great and middle powers simply don't see it our way and don't come on our side. We have, um, my Oxford University Research Project on Europe in a Changing World has done two big rounds of polling with the European Council on Foreign Relations, um, China, India, Turkey, Russia, and most recently also Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, South Africa, Brazil, and South Korea. And overwhelming these, these countries, number one, want the war to stop as soon as possible even if it means Ukraine giving up a large chunk of its territory. Number two, think Russia is likely to win the war. Number three, many of them see the West, either the US or the EU and or Ukraine, as a bigger obstacle to peace than Russia. Um, and of course, why it matters um, is that these are not, you know, tiny poor countries way down south. These are major powers. Um, we stopped buying Russia's oil. 
so India buys Russia's oil. We impose sanctions on Russia, so China ups its economic relationship with Russia. And so these are these are real powers, um, great and middle. And um, so that's why it matters. What do we do about it? Well, I would say the first thing to do about it is if we want to win over the global south, stop talking about the global south. I feel that very strongly. Global south itself suggests some sort of undifferentiated mass of poor, misguided, um, semi-blinded countries that have to be won over to the one true side of, of the West or the global North. You know, what our polling and our whole research project shows is this is understandably not how they see themselves. China, India, Russia, Turkey, Brazil, South Africa, all see themselves as heirs to great civilizations, sometimes heirs to great empires, and again as great powers amongst great powers. And so instead of this undifferentiated talk of the global south, I think we as Europe or the United States should have an India policy, a Turkey policy, a Brazil policy, a South Africa policy, and treat them as they see themselves as great powers in their own right. I fully agree. And I had a line in my notes to, to have a disclaimer on also the use of Global South that I didn't say. And because I, in so many conversations on this issue where um, everyone recognizes that it's probably not a useful term, but for lack of a better way to describe the challenge, it continues to be the default. So is there a more productive way to talk about this? Yes, I think if I may, you have to say, because the, the other thing these countries are saying to us, and that emerges very clearly from our work, is we resist all binary framings or bipolar framings. Don't invite us to be part of the West rather than the rest, or the West rather than the East, or the North rather than the South, or democracies rather than autocracies. We're actually going to resist all these bipolar framings. And by the way, the other really interesting thing that just emerges from our new round of polling is they think it's perfectly fine to have their closest economic relationship with China, but still a very good security relationship with the US and get on well and you know enjoy what Europe has to offer. So they are disaggregating these different dimensions of the relationships. And here are we trying to give them as it were a set menu, you're with us or against us. So I would say we have to use a few more words talk about great and middle powers outside the traditional transatlantic West, and then talk about the different dimensions of the relationships. You know, if I may actually on this, you know, I, um, well, firstly, I fully agree. Um, I did though find it interesting, you know, sort of a few months ago, I was in Indonesia um, and I was at a global town hall in Indonesia. And, you know, there were, sort of on and offline, I mean, something like, you know, sort of 40,000 people registered. I mean, it's massive. I found it quite interesting how um, it wasn't just the Indonesians, but it was the Indians. They made reference to the global south. Um, so I think the, the point that you're making, Tim, is correct. But I think it, I think it's not useful to use it not so much because it comes across as patronizing and all the rest of it, but because it's not useful to us. 
because it prevents us from elaborating differentiated policies that can actually uh, get us to a better place compared to where we are in our relationships with these countries. So that's that's one point. Second, um, I think that there is, I mean, uh, alongside the point that obviously every country is different and you need to develop policies for, for you know, for each and every one, um, I think there is a there is a distinction between again, if one is to sort of use um, you know sort of categorizations that are useful up to a point between the power south and the poor south. Um, you know, there is a power south, which is indeed the Indians and the Brazils and the Indonesias. Um, and these are the you know Saudi Arabia's uh, that will um, they are the multi-alliance you know they are the ones that will pick and choose from everyone uh, in a hyper transactional way uh, as you know the Indian uh, foreign minister uh, put it uh, recently I can't remember exactly where is it I heard him uh, where he said you know sort of India is only aligned to its own national interests and I think you know that is really reflective of the the philosophy in a sense of the foreign policy of the multi-alliance I think that's different from you know that there are a number of countries which you know again um, uh, sort of stark simplification here but let's call them let's call it the 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 poor south so these are countries that are that they don't um they just want to be left alone basically you know they don't want to be forced to choose um not so much because uh, i mean it's not the same reasoning as the multi-alliance because they want to extract benefits from all sides but because by choosing it basically just entails costs for them um, so they just want to be kept out of our mess, basically. Uh, and I think that uh, alongside the, the, I think, correct point of differentiating country by country, I think it's also useful to make a distinction between countries, you know, again, that, that have aspirations and they are already acting as powers and those countries that we basically just don't want to be kind of pushed in a corner and, and be forced for cho- to choose, but for, for different kinds of reasons. Can I pick up on that? I mean, uh, uh, Natalie, a, a colleague of mine, Faisal Devji, who's a very fine historian of India, says um, India talks a lot about the global south, but doesn't actually think of itself as part of it. And I think that's fundamentally true. Um, They are also using it instrumentally. Well, we can't stop them using it instrumentally, but I think we agree that that doesn't mean we should use the term. Uh, Now, multi-alignment or multi-aligning is a fascinating term because it it comes from Modi, Narendra Modi, um, who was trying to differentiate what he was doing from non-alignment the older Indian position, and says we're multi-aligning. And I think that's exactly the mot juste. That's exactly what these powers are doing. And I would say to your colleagues in Washington who say, why the hell does it matter? Um, these countries matter. The power south, these handful of large, uh, you know, growing economies, um, they really matter. And the, 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 the challenge and opportunity of multi-alignment is that even if they're with Russia 
for their arms supplies or their energy supplies, that doesn't mean they're going to be with Russia on everything else. So in that multi-alignment, in that a la carte quality of the relationships is also an opportunity if, 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 we, if we're smart enough to, to seize that opportunity and to say, hey, we can get a long way in, you know, technology or internet regulation or trade or some other areas, maybe climate policy that really matter to us with these really important countries, um, even if they're not with us on the war in Ukraine or, or, or Israel Hamas. Jim, let me slide one more question in. I know you're waiting, but I have, I, I want to throw this idea out and have you both respond to it, which Natalie, I take your point that this predated Ukraine, that it wasn't caused, it wasn't created at that moment. But it still strikes me that Russia's invasion did fundamentally change something. And one of the things it seems to me is that it it has given more, uh, it has been a catalyst, it's given more momentum to a grouping of countries that is deeply opposed to the United States. And I'm thinking of Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. And so with that invasion, um, you know, I, I get to, I'm, it's not an articulate, it's not clear in my mind yet, but the, the idea is with global order, orders are something that strong states like the United States create because and, and Europe uh, uh, it participates in because it's fundamentally in our interest. It amplifies our power. Other states might not agree with the order, but they have basically a collective action problem that, you know, if they all defected at once, they could undermine the order. But if you have nowhere to defect to, then it, the, the order continues. And with the invasion, it feels to me like it was a tipping point, a catalyst away from the order. And now many of these um you know, other countries in the rest of the world now have a center of gravity around which they can coalesce. And I, I wonder if you agree with that or, or, or you know, and, and I guess that raises the question of whether or not it's reversible. Like, did Russia's invasion of Ukraine so fundamentally change things that we can ultimately undo this problem? Or do we really now live in another world where we don't have one order? Like you said, we've strengthened our own order, but now there's this other alternative emergent order. And and and, and in that case, it's not reversible. I, I, I mean, no. if, wait, oh, go, ahead. For, go ahead. For, did you want to, because I, shall I start? Um, uh, so I think I disagree with the way you framed it because I don't think there is an alternative order. One should resist the temptations of rhyme, the West versus the rest. Mm -hmm. The West exists, it's an alliance. The rest doesn't exist. And I think what we're seeing in this multi-aligning world is what I would call disorder as opportunity. So we look at it and we think this is disorder, but they look at it and it gives us the possibility of choice. Um, but I don't see emerging strong, permanent, um, uh, uh, long-term alliances between most of these powers, not even China and Russia, despite all the language of without limits and so on. I mean, that is definitely transactional. So I, I, don't, I don't see, I see a lot of other great powers who are seeing opportunities in the disorder around our Western order, but I don't see another pole forming or a new order forming as a rival to ours. You know, I would I, I totally agree with that, but I and I would add to it that if there 
is something that Russia's invasion uh, did. I mean, I think it did two things. I think on the one hand, actually, I mean, alongside what we were talking about earlier, it reveals something that was already happening. I mean, it was already happening that there were a number of countries that didn't want to choose. It was already happening um, that, you know, there was a discussion about, you know, alternative, uh, in, you know, sort of international currencies, given the effects of whatever, extraterritorial U.S. sanctions. I mean, those debates, the debates of multipolarity were already there, Right. Um, so actually, I think, you know, what is it that Russia's invasion of Ukraine did? One is, um, I actually do think that it didn't weaken the West, you know, I mean, there, there were those 141 countries there. Um, so I think on, on the one hand, it revealed the problem, but it did actually, um, you know, Western countries are on the on the right side of law when it comes to uh, when it comes to Ukraine. And I'll get to this problem uh, in in a moment. Um, secondly, I think if it did do something, is that it weakened Ru- Russia with respect to China. So if it did do something in terms of creating these alternatives, it created a dynamic within the BRICS, which is now a very, very clearly a China-led grouping, which still is incredibly heterogeneous and so beyond being non-West it doesn't have, you know, a lot of glue, basically. But there is an, a primus inter pares in the BRICS in a way in which it wasn't as apparent prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a consequence of Russia's relative weakening uh, in the context of, of the war in Ukraine. You know, I think that, um, and, and here we get to, to the Middle East, I worry far more about the implications, of, you know, concerning the weakening of the West with respect to, you know, the rest, uh, um, when it comes to war in the Middle East. We're not on the right side of law. We're not on the right side of norms. Um, You know, we are in a minority, and it is no longer a minority that can afford to completely ignore a majority. Um, You know, I, I think that our positioning on the war in the Middle East has been an incredible gift to Russia and China. Um, and and I don't think that we're thinking, you know, sort of deeply about the way in which the way we're acting is fundamentally, um, well, alongside the fact that I personally think that it's doing nothing to actually um, support Israeli security, but I think it's fundamentally weakening ourselves in the process. Boy, I certainly agree with that. I, I, this has been a, just a fabulous discussion. And Andrea, I wanted to hook on to your question, uh, and it's something that both Tim and Natalie have raised, and that is the BRICS. You know, the BRICS at one time was a bit of an economic, you know, trade kind of context, uh, you know, designed uh, to be on the pages of, uh, you know, of uh, the New York Times and the Financial Times. But it seems that has changed a bit now, too. I mean, the BRICS has all of a sudden become not just a a, a, a convenient way to talk about uh, these economies, these growing economies, uh, although Russia, I, I'm not sure they belong in there. But uh, but that aside, suddenly there does seem to be this third way, you know, this non-aligned movement, if you will, that's beginning to gain strength based on that already existing grouping that all of a sudden nations want to join it. Uh, and suddenly um, it, it looks like maybe slowly, but do you all think that that's going to become over time 
Um, actually, a, uh, a, a kind of what uh, Andrea was getting at, it's actually going to be a, uh, a competitor uh, for, for, for hearts and minds, if you will, a bit of a competitor uh, for the West uh, to, be, to kind of uh, be preaching this idea that there is a third way. Um, you know, it's something closer to what we all experience with the non-aligned movement. I don't want to make too close a comparison. There's different times. But I think the BRICS have all of a sudden become, it, that's become something more than just an economic collective. Or am I just totally off? <laughs> so I know Natalie has got to go in a moment. So Natalie, why don't you shoot and then I'll come in if you... So, so you know, a, a couple of things. I mean, firstly, on the... Um, the, the, going back to this, the non-aligned and the multi-aligned and, you know, sort of what's beyond the fact that one is non and the other is multi, but what's, what, what, what's, one of, what's the core difference? And I think the core difference um, really revolves around the fact that there's no ideal, you know, the non-aligned movement had an ideological glue. So actually it was more cohesive than the multi-aligns. The multi-aligns are aligned only to their national interests. They're fun fundamentally transactional, which basically means that um, you know, if we force them, if, if we force them in an either or, then, then we'll lose them. In a sense, the only way to engage with the transactional is to be transactional. Um, <laughs> there is there is no alternative, right? Because if you Forced a different way, they will literally just go the other way, which kind of you know presents all sorts of problems because, of course, if we go entirely transactional um, and you you know ignore the fact that you know sort of um, a um, citizen in one of the G seven states is <laughs> basically assassinated uh, by one of these multi aligns, and you just completely ignore the problem. Uh, so you know the, the question is you know. Is there a limit to how transactional you can you can go? And when is it that that transactionalism eventually comes and bites back at you? I think that's a debate where we still haven't figured out exactly what the what the equilibrium is, yeah, what the new equilibrium should be. Um, but then let me just add also alongside this um, a, a, a BRICS related point. So you know, I, I think that the real victim of the world as it is developing is um, what we thought was going to be the multilateral expression of a multipolar world. Yeah. So we thought, or I thought at least, maybe you didn't, um, that it would be multilateral groupings like the G20 that would actually gain traction in the multipolar world. And I've changed my mind on this. I actually think that the multilateral groupings that are gaining traction are the ones that are led by 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 one of the you know the by the by one of the big boys. So I do think you know on the one hand there's the story of NATO, EU, the G7, and the G7 plus. So there's an expansion in a sense there uh, going on, and then you can have other bits and bobs, you know, the quad and all the rest of it. And then on the other hand, you have the BRICS and the BRICS Plus, which is very clearly China-led. I think what's withering away, and you know, I, I think it's almost a miracle that actually the last G, two G20s even managed to kind of cough up, up a joint statement. You know, I think you know, kudos in this respect to the Indonesians and then the Indians. Um, but I think as the world is increasingly fracturing, we're going to be seeing more of these 
G7 BRICS with their respective pluses gain more traction, perhaps with G7, G7 plus, um, given that it's more cohesive, having more of a policy agenda, as opposed to BRICS and BRICS plus having more of a purely political, in a sense, agenda of being anti-West. But it's really what's in between, that the multilateral in between that is that risks withering away. Mm. So, first of all, what all these countries have in common is a loathing of the West and a desire to poke the West in the eye. And that's what really binds Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Right. That that's, Timothy, that's what's what I was going to ask you, though. So you talk like there's the hardening of the transatlantic West and there's the disorder in with the rest. But can that be is that enough glue to no. provide an alternative? The, the, my, uh, my answer is emphatically no. And I mean, I think I disagree in slightly in emphasis with Natalie and with what Jim was suggesting more so. I simply do not think that we are seeing the emergence of a China-led BRICS or BRICS plus six, which is in any meaningful way going to be a long-term block in the way that the West, the US uh, transatlantic West is a meaningful long-term block. Um, I mean, if we look at opinion in India or Indian policy, it's highly suspicious of China. And of course, India is, you know, has the potential to be, if not a superpower, very major power in that region. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 the Chinese-Russian relationship is certainly not a given uh, for the next decades. Uh, Post-Putin Russia might very well want to turn back towards Europe and the West. And there are multiple other differences in that grouping. So I do not think it will become. What, what is true is that th- th- they all like giving it to the West, sticking it to the West. And number two, the new thing is that they have started to kind of rhetorically self-describe BRICS as an alternative mm-hmm. block. That is true. That is new. But I think we shouldn't confuse that as it were rhetorical position with a deep reality, which is going to last for years and decades ahead, a deep geopolitical and geoeconomic reality, because I don't think it is. And transactional, I mean, I do agree with Natalie that 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 we 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 in particularly in Europe, uh, while while not while not completely abandoning our values or even putting them on the back burner, do need a more interest-based um language in talking to these to these countries. But there is one interesting thing that emerges from our polling, uh, the, the new polling which has just come out, which is the the West remains overwhelmingly attractive in terms of soft power. If you ask people in all these countries, where would you rather live if not at home? You know, US and Europe win hands down, tiny. (laughs) Who wants to go and live in Russia? Not many people want to go and live in China. But also, interestingly, we asked about alignment on human rights. Would you rather be with a US-led group or China-led group? Overwhelmingly, US-led. Regulation of the internet. Again, overwhelmingly, we prefer the US model to the China model. So we, we, we have a lot of strength still in, in, in the soft power dimension, which uh, frankly, none of, the, none of these countries have. And in order to maintain that soft power, by the way, 
um, it's really important, and because we also have a, an appeal in terms of our political values, right? So we ask a question about whether Russia belongs to Europe in terms of its current political values. Answer overwhelmingly no. Um, but of course, if we're seen to have complete double standards over the bombing of civilians, for example, um, between these two wars, um, that also undermines our soft power and our credibility. Yeah, the, those are excellent points. On the what to do about it, and Natalie, if you have another minute, I mean, what, I mean, you both have talked about kind of disaggregating all of the countries and having kind of a India policy, a China policy, et cetera, et cetera. But from, you know, I think what I struggle with a little bit sitting in Washington and hearing where this administration's priorities are and even and far beyond, it's a it's a China focus. And so if you're asking the administration to to, to take the time and develop a policy individualized for each country that the answer is, well, we're doing China. And so you, you run into a bandwidth issue. So I just wonder how, how you think about how do we actually put this into practice in a world where we still seem to be having such a narrow focus on China? Is it that we just focus on the power South and we can kind of de-emphasize the, the quote unquote poor South? Or how, how do we think about setting into motion the things that you're talking about that it's clear that we need to do. You know, I actually think that, I mean, you despair about the US. I think I despair about far more about Europe. I actually think that um, the Biden administration, of course, you know, in relation to China, has actually been rather successful in developing relationships um, with other countries. Of course, the aim is China. Now, I think, you know, um, the the next step is to go beyond this goes to the you know accepting the fact you know sort of beyond the either with with us or against us accepting that it's neither with us nor against us um so you know one thing is to be good in developing partnerships with your g7 plus and plus plus and your quad uh um but there needs to be, and in, in, in many respects, kind of, you know, sort of India is the closest to it. But of course, the fact that India has such tense relations with, with China helps in this respect. Yeah. I think the next step the US has to make is, you know, really developing policies towards the neither with us nor against us category. Um, I think the problem that we have in Europe is that we we haven't even got to that stage. Yeah. We haven't even got to the stage of, developing meaningful relations with countries that are, you know, beyond basically the circle of enlargement and wannabe member states and uh, the United States and, frankly speaking, nothing else. Uh, so, oddly, you know, although it was Europeans that always contested the US either with us or against us line, we're far worse than the US in dealing with the neither with us nor against us. One quick follow-up, Natalie, and something you wrote in your Guardian op-ed, which I also found really striking, is when you were in Indonesia, you got the question of, well, why are you coming here now? And, you know, the, with the Biden administration's such a, with the focus on China, I feel like we have signaled to the rest of the world that we care far less about other regions. And so there is the obvious question from a lot of these countries is, why are you coming here now? Like, do... 
and I wonder, you know, when you got that question, how do you answer? Or with a little bit of reflection, how, how do we answer that question now? Because it seems very instrumentalized now. And so have we lost the credibility to come to these countries and, and, and to offer closer relations or engagement? It seems very yeah. simple when the U.S. does it. It, it, is, it. it is. It is. But actually, I think, oddly, this, the, um, you know, given that you can't hide behind, you know, a sort of finger, it's better to be open about it uh, rather than to pretend that, you know, you do it out of generosity or you do it out of, yeah, I mean, you do it because, you know, India is not sort of um, embarrassed to say that it's aligned with its national interest. Um, You know, I think what's really irritating to many of these countries is when you pretend that you're doing it for some sort of greater good, when it's crystal clear that you're doing it because of China or because... So, you know, be open about it. I mean, they see right through you, so you may as well just talk about it openly. The U.S. does this all the time. We go to the South Pacific, Tahiti, these islands, and we're here, you know, and it's like, well, well, thanks, thanks. Come on in, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and stop preaching. Yeah, exactly. Much too much preaching, I think, particularly Europeans. Uh, you know, we started talking about the West versus the West and the global South. I would finish up talking about India. Just India. I mean, you know, it's not only Washington that has difficulty concentrating on more than one thing at a time. India is in a class of its own. India is still some kind of a democracy. India is a, one of these countries that has the potential to be a superpower. So I think what we should have is a huge, you know, really intensive transatlantic conversation about about developing an India policy. And I thought you you could convince people even in Washington that India might matter. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I guess we always try to end on somewhat of an optimistic note. I mean, I guess I'll take that because I mean, and and Timothy, all of your points on the polling and the soft power and the um, human rights points. I mean, there is a whole lot of positive there that we have to offer. And so to your point, you know, there's a lot to work with. Um, and so I, I really appreciated those points. Um, both of you, this was really an amazing conversation. Um, I thank you for your time and maybe we can check in, in, I don't know, several months time and see how we're doing, but I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. This has been just so stimulating. I wish we could go for another hour. It was wonderful talking to you. Great pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.